millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is an RNZ podcast. It's early on the 1st of January, 2000. I'm 21 and was hoping to see the sunrise on the new millennium. But the sun is nowhere to be seen. It's been bucketing down all night. I'm wet, cold, tired, but happy having danced the night away with 15,000 friends on top of Takaka Hill at an electronic dance music festival called The Gathering. There were only supposed to be about 8,500 of us, but someone has made some quick and tidy cash selling forged tickets, so there's more like double that. My little sister has thoughtfully packed down our tent and has been waiting, sulking, in the car for hours for me and my brother to come back to base. I probably stared incredulously at her. I didn't want the party to end. Uh, I know I'm, you know, fairly famous for my party poopiness, but... I, you know, we all wanted a hot shower and a dry bed to sleep in, and I'm not going to apologise for that. I might have been inwardly relieved. It had been a long night, I was muddy from head to toe, there was ringing in my ears, and I probably did need to sleep. We trundled down the hill in our parents' Toyota Corolla, my 17-year-old, slightly wired brother, driving cautiously down the mud-slicked shingle road as the rain persisted. About 8,000 others had the same idea thinking about it now from a parent's perspective I would have been very, very worried about us coming down that hill Kia ora, I'm Kirsten Johnstone this is Eyewitness and this is the story of a dance festival at the top of a mountain at the turn of the millennium the one everyone refers to as the Rainy Gathering Rave culture had been gaining momentum since the late 80s in New Zealand spreading from clubs in the cities out to the provinces In 1992, a group of DJs who'd been inspired by outdoor dance parties in Europe and Goa set up N-Train, a rave that drew around 600 people to the Stardust Bowl up on Takaka Hill. By the third year, they had around 3,000 face-painted, dreaded, freewheeling hippies dancing to trance and dub at Golden Downs. But there was discontent among the organising committee, And as they drove away from that 1995 party, some members started planning their own festival, an alcohol-free event which they'd called The Gathering. Murray Kingy, Mel Rutherford-Dower, Tim Owens, Grant Smithies and Joe Catchamail saw the opportunity to bring the fractured sub-genres of dance music together for one festival and invest in higher production values. The rest of their in-train cohort were pretty pissed and opted out of competing. Dance music had a fast-growing audience in New Zealand. Albums by The Orbital, The Orb, Left Field and Future Sound of London had reached provincial teenagers like me, and you know it's reached peak when that happens. The gathering was the right thing at the right time. It felt like a first for New Zealand, like it really felt like a coming together. I mean, yeah, it's called The Gathering. <laughs> this is Tikitane, who was still a metalhead when he joined Dub Roots band Salmonella Dub. But a coming together 
of everybody around Aotearoa, New Zealand, you know. So back then you had your kind of your scenes, you know, where I was kind of in the, the dub, more the drum and bass jungle scene. And there was, you know, the trance zone was massive, it was outdoors, and then you had hardcore, which was a tent, nothing that was under 200 BPMs or something was played there, so it was like... I think it was kind of the real first attempt at doing the multi-genre type thing. And it became a massively important part of the musical eco-culture at the time. Over a few years, firm friendships were forged, acts were started as a result of the gathering, like Pitch Black and Fat Freddy's Drop. Minwi, Kinkapisi, Salmonella Dub and The Nomad found loyal fans, meaning they could tour the country more during the year. There were kids who would go on to find success as electronic music producers and DJs. I've met a lot of people since who it really made them want to become DJs. So they went away and, and learned to DJ and got into collecting records. and So it sparked off a lot of things for, for a lot of people. That's Grant Smithies, a music journalist and DJ who was one of the people back in 96 who convinced a local farmer to lend his land to the festival. We had to talk to Doc because there was a native snail in part of that forest that they were, con- they were concerned about, mm. that was, so we had to rope off part of that. But, but really, the main dramas were going to be getting everything that you need to have you know, 10,000 people or whatever up to a place that's only got one tiny road that goes in and out. Mm. So we ended up doing things like getting you know, gel ignite and blasting off some of the corners of the road, <laughs> of the road in this fairly Mickey Mouse uh, kind of way. Once you got up that treacherous road, the beech forest surrounding the paddocks was idyllic. The limestone landscape perfect for exploring in between dances. Māori legend says that the scales of a tanifa are embedded in that land. It's special up in Canaan Downs. There's a, a magical wider up there. It's raw, it's rugged, but it's also got an intense energy, but a beautiful energy at the same time. The first gathering I went to was the second one in, bringing us into 1998. I was 19. Memories are a little blurry now, but I remember all the little art installations hidden in the woods, the childlike wonder of it all. I remember how chilled out and friendly everyone was, and feeling safe. It was a magic time, camping with friends, losing ourselves in music and dance, and that 80-kilowatt sound system in the trance zone went all day and all night. No let-up. I mean, this was before major sort of corporations got involved, and there was no, you know, iPhones or internet. So <laughs> it felt very free, and I think it's when I look back on it, I really miss those times. I miss being able to completely lose myself, be engulfed in music and transcend and just just go there with it. But also, if you lost your friends, you lost your friends. You, lost your friends. you made new ones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'd have a meeting point. So if you lost your friends, it was like, you know, meet you over there and at some point. And, um, you know, I'm re- I just remember having nowhere to stay, so it was either crash out in a car or a van or under a stage or meet a pretty girl and then that was that for the night or two or you know what I mean it was a really exciting time a lot of us cut our teeth in this whole kind of scene and it was it was you know it was super exciting the music was fresh the culture the scene was fresh the drugs were really good (laughs) hearing people recount memories of the gathering is a little bit like hearing about a surrealist dream things get a little bit warpy 
the stilt walkers. Giant homemade twister boards you find a huge dial on a tree. And this giant stilt walking fairy really slowly walked past me. Sequined covered angels. Crazy paper mache creatures throughout the forest. Who had a horse's head on and he goes, are you lost? Nothing really fitted anymore. Those are a few of the people I spoke to for a doco about the gathering in 2007. Nelson, also home to the world of wearable arts at the time, had a lot of artists who made installations for the gathering and performance artists in wild costumes on stilts, throwing fire around were everywhere. Murray Kingy, known as DJ Flux when he was on the decks, was one of the main organisers. By the Millennium event, Grant Smithies and Joe Catchamale had pulled out, so Kingy and his partner at the time, Alison Green, were running the show with help from around 1,500 volunteers, stage managers, soundies, support crew, an outreach team and the health and safety crew. They took care of any of those kind of problems that we had, you know. They, people did take too much stuff. The wrong stuff. The wrong stuff, too much of the right stuff. <laughs> and we would have that place for them where we, somebody could bring them or we would find them and we'd take them and we'd talk them down and we'd, we'd hardly ever have to take them off site. There's no getting around the fact that a large portion of the audience were under the influence of something, whether it was a little bit of weed or a cocktail of acid and MDMA. An informal Nelson Mail poll at the Millennium event reported that 93 out of 100 gatherers surveyed admitted taking some kind of illegal drug, with ecstasy being by far the most popular. The Nelson police accepted the fact that the reason there was barely any violence or any other incidents at the gathering was that the audience was so loved up. Murray reckons their relationship with police was good. It was a little interesting chat, but it had to be done, and we would comply with every request that they had as long as they didn't come onto our the site itself. That would happen very rarely. You would see a policeman there every now and then. They'd do a little tour, get them out again. In the lead-up to the turn of the millennium, there was global anxiety about the Y2K bug, that our computers would stop working and that it might cause missiles to drop out of the sky or rip out the fabric of our entire economic system. And while the FPOS did crash for a little while at the Gathering Festival, it wasn't the only worry we had. There had been persistent rumours that a white supremacist group were planning a massacre of gatherers at midnight. I remember friends being actually really worried about it. It was just basically troublemaking by um, a group called the Fourth Reich in, um, in Westport. But we had to take everything seriously. I think it was about four, three, four days before... Our event, uh, the SAS came in and swept the whole site just to check, check for caches. They didn't find a stash of weapons or white supremacists in the bush. They actually came back with a, a, a map for us with um, crosses where people were hiding in the uh, forest who wanted to get them free. <laughs> oh, hey, if, they were, if they chose to walk in the hardest route, which is like a day really, or more, then we just let them in. They deserved it. <laughs> A few cheap trampers hiding in the bush was the least of Murray's worries. They'd discovered that someone had sold forged tickets to the tune of around half a million dollars. I hope they enjoyed it. I hope they enjoyed the money. By around midday on the 31st, cars were snaking right down the hill, gridlocked. 
Games of Hacky Sack alleviated the boredom of waiting in line. What really messed us up was when the police came up and parked the car on our main front gate and said, get everyone in, ticketed or not, they have to get in, you're not going to block this road. And of course they were all coming up and the rumour went all the way down the cars, they got on their phones, hey, the gathering's free, everybody come up. What happens? We blow out to, you know, 15,000, 16,000 people. We ran with it, we had to. It was a logistical nightmare, but we kind of did it and then it rained. That... <laughs> really put the cat amongst the pigeons. Ask anyone who is at the top of that hill what they remember about the 31st of December 1999. They'll say... Rain. The rain. Rain, rain, rain. Rain. Were you prepared for it? Uh, No, not at all. I don't think anyone was. Not like rain like that. That was... (laughs) (laughs) That was like, wowee. That's Tikitana again. It started raining about 10 minutes before the crew opened the gates. And it didn't really stop until an hour or so after the gathering had ended. It was kind of fun at first, but then it got really kind of like, oh, this is quite dangerous, you know, like people starting to panic. And then you mix that with your acid and mushrooms and the things get a bit warpy. (laughs) And people are, you know, stages are kind of like stopping because it's getting too dangerous. And then tents are getting flooded out, cars are getting flooded out, and it becomes this massive kind of... Um, civil defence problem actually I think it was like 17,000 people there at the time I can't remember and I remember the army sort of getting involved and it made it a really intense time Yeah. Some were reasonably prepared for the elements we'd been before and we knew it could get blazing hot or freezing cold there were others though who really had no idea Dance bunnies from Auckland with just just furry boots and a tank top and a little backpack that you know the size of a little beer coming to a three-day festival with nothing but that two and a half thousand feet on top of a mountain you could see lines of people getting the hell out of there because all they turned up with was the fpos card that's sam trevethick who'd just formed shapeshifter about six months before this they weren't playing the gathering just yet but they'd go on to do the next one it didn't really cross our minds to leave on new year's eve we had jackets friends for warmth water and food really wasn't a priority. Behind the scenes, though, there were serious discussions going down. Murray Kingy. There was one point just before midnight where I had to make the decision whether to carry on or not. I had half the crew yelling at me to stop this madness, and we had the other half of the crew telling us, you can't stop this. And I just went, I think if we stopped it right now, we're going to have a panic and a panic to get off that hill, single lane gravel road, we're going to have deaths. I can't do that, no. So despite torrential rain, rising mud and small lakes forming, we partied on. Salman Dub played the 11 o'clock slot in the drum and bass area. We're always keen to play through whatever kind of weather it was. Back then there wasn't that kind of health and safety that you have these days. Many of times we played with Salman Dub and, and amp racks have been underwater and power plugs have been underwater and things like that. We just sort of play on. I mean, it's year 2000. This is it. This is the what we're here for. I mean, I dreamt as a kid, what, what would I be doing in the year 2000? We'd and probably given up dreams of yeah. being at the pyramids watching yeah. Pink Floyd. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> at the time, Salman Dub were on the verge of becoming a mainstream summer staple. They'd just released Killer Vision, an album of woozy, laid-back dub beats, layered with horns, guitars and recorders. 
I remember the feeling of that set, the strange and weird sounds, my heart exploding with joy, the rain on our faces, the mud pooling at our ankles and the chilled out crowd. It's one of my favourite festival sets ever. I do remember it sort of stopping raining but then starting raining again and I remember the crowd just being as one and quite giant, like a trance type thing and I remember the stage was getting wet and we had to move things around and it was just, you know, like uh, everyone's kind of in it all together, you know, it was, it was a pretty special moment. I remember going into the New Year's countdown with my friend, it was raining and just feeling this sense of abandon, this freedom, you know, that we're in this moment despite everything and it was so cool. Murray had more in store for us. He shut down all the zones just before midnight for a communal karakia and waiata. I want to pay respects to the land that we're on and uh, treat the, the passing of the millennium as a, a passing. He'd organised the local komatua to come up the hill for it. And then I found out that she was my father's cousin and that that land up there is actually my ancestral land, which was quite freaky. I wonder why it had such a distinctive hold on me. I remember we'd synchronised our watches, as you did back in the 90s, to do that countdown together. But the timer up the top of the DJ pavilion was obviously malfunctioning. I delayed the millennium about five or six minutes because we weren't ready. (laughs) And then once it started, it just was everything I I was hoping it would, would be. No skinheads with guns, no missiles falling from the sky, no banks collapsing. Only a reflective moment followed by fireworks and some banging beats. Which is not to say there wasn't any drama. Probably the worst was that um, a grief-stricken woman coming into the office saying that her child was missing. This was about three or four in the morning and Murray, who'd been up for days, was trying to get a little bit of kip while he could. But when that happened, he was straight onto his quad bike with the woman on the back, the entire security crew out looking for a toddler. A friend of mine, Tope, he was wading through two, three foot of water with his hands trying to feel for a kid. You know, how horrible was that? It was a false alarm. The woman had some issues, but she hadn't exactly lost her kid. There was a child. She was happily with her father in their tent, nice and dry, warm, sleeping, because that's what they went and did. She didn't like that. When I figured that out, what she was talking about, I said, oh, my God. That affected a few people. Affected me. (laughs) Sorry. Temperatures had dropped by that point. Energy was waning. But if you stopped dancing, you got cold fast. The medical staff were on high alert for hypothermia. Industrial heaters were roaring in the food tent and anyone with a van was using it to warm people up. By daybreak, the Salvation Army and Red Cross had swung into action, handing out jerseys and jackets to anyone who needed them and taking small loads of the coldest people off the hill. There was a period there where that whole thing could have actually become massively serious. I think it was more a testament to the gathering crew that it actually didn't um, become an absolute nightmare. That's Mike Hodgson from Pitch Black, who'd arrived to play after midnight. We were reasonably fresh compared to some of the crew and um, helped sort of 
make sure the kids were okay and, and let them know they weren't going to die. And then we took a few of them off the mountain, took them back to their parents who were completely freaking out. So my Millennium Gathering was quite odd. There's nothing in my world but sweet, sweet music. Fall in love, rain, rain. There were some sprained ankles, a broken leg. Someone whose hair caught fire when they were trying to keep warm suffered severe burns. But nobody died. Many tents were completely flooded. There are photos of little pup tents sitting in a lake. One friend woke up with a river flowing through his tent. Another friend turned up without a tent at all, but he wasn't the only one. Cars had nearly gone off the cliff on the way up and down. That morning of the first, there was a rumour going around that they were about to shut the roads. And so, about 8,000 people got off that hill. Me and my siblings were part of that convoy. Murray Kingy, for one, was relieved. Oh, thank goodness. I remember jumping on a quad and grabbing a battery and some leads and driving up and down the lines, giving people jumpers, because they would sit there with a the heater on without running the engine and running the battery flat. There's some great footage of the gathering, January the 1st, 2000, shot by music video director Chris Graham. The paddocks are completely brown. There are lakes of water. There's a hint of sunshine, though, and there are pockets of muddy people dancing on, doing mudslides, mud angels. I'm not sad I wasn't there for that part. The clean-up began when everyone had left. Gatherers were, for the most part, a pretty conscientious bunch, so most had cleaned up after themselves, taken their saturated tents, or at least piled them up with others destined for the trash. Organisers lost a lot of hired gear, though. We're talking like 26 radio units, tools, equipment. You know, I think there's even a trailer missing. And that Canaan Downs limestone mud? You can never get it off. There are speakers in Nelson that, 20 years later, still have mud on them. Others would never work again. The speakers were wheat bix inside. <laughs> Murray and the crew had never managed the budget very carefully. That first event only lost $800, but it had lost more in successive years. The 98 to 99 one lost 60000 The Millennium Gathering, despite the forged tickets and the rain, was the only one to break even. They had a string of accountants, but the books were hard to keep with so many contra-deals being done, and Murray refused all but a couple of small and largely invisible commercial sponsorship deals. There was a huge cost to being fiercely independent. We spent every single red cent of their ticket money on the party. But it was never about getting rich. Every festival organiser knows it's not about that. It's a hugely risky and stressful venture, but Murray wouldn't take it back for a moment. Standing up on that stage looking out and seeing the smiles on everybody's faces, that was enough. There's probably lots of things I could have done differently, probably lots of things I should have done differently, but at the time, they weren't as important as the party itself. Standing, looking out at the mud, Murray and the crew made the decision to move the gathering away from Canaan Downs. It had been too close a call. The gathering limped on for another two years down on the flats in Golden Bay. The 2001 party suffered a ticketing muck-up, according to Murray. A lot of money never came through from the company managing ticketing. They were also competing with a new festival, Alpine Unity, near Christchurch, which took about 5,000 ex-gatherers, myself included. 
The 2002 festival was the last. The company went into liquidation. At the same time, Murray Kingy lost his father. It all fell apart. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I did not know what to do for a long time. Still don't. <laughs> the gathering was a formative event for some of us, or at least something we look forward to every year. Sam from Shapeshifter explains. It was special. It was really a, it was a certain type of zenith that happened. Just to sort of join join nature with music in a way that could make an amazing festival without it being too hippie or too nightclub or you know too K Road. Having this kind of club experience on the top of this mountain in Golden Bay, I just thought it was marvellous. You know, it's a real feeling of how all the months and of work and drama to get to that point were really worth it, that it was giving people an experience that was they were going to remember for the rest of their days. Dance music never went away. From the earliest moments of human history, people have gathered together to dance, to celebrate, to court, to worship and to mourn. The gathering up on Takaka Hill that year was just one of those moments. Acts like Pitch Black, Concord Dawn and Shapeshifter became household names and still have careers touring overseas. And though dance music might have fallen out of favour with the mainstream here and gone back underground for a bit, the kids are still dancing. A 2019 survey ranked electronic dance music as the world's third most popular music genre. There's been a new underground rave scene bubbling up for the last five years or so. Splore Festival celebrated 20 years last year. Like The Gathering, it's more about the experience, the art, the costumes, the togetherness of the crowd than headline acts. Some of the people that set that festival up were part of that original entering crew, the forerunner to The Gathering. The Gathering was perhaps the last big New Zealand festival to operate without corporate sponsorship and made all the mistakes subsequent festivals would try to avoid. It was a little festival with a lot of heart and those of us who experienced it feel lucky to have been there with that community in that special place. The Rainy Gathering was produced by me, Kirsten Johnstone, and engineered by Jason McClelland. Justin Gregory is the executive producer for Eyewitness, and Tim Watkin, the executive producer for podcasts and series. Music was by The Nomad, Rian Sheen, Ecto, Epsilon Blue, Salman Aladab, Pitch Black, Paddy Free, Rota Plus, and Kamandi. For more podcasts like this, click on podcasts at the top of the RNZ website. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.